0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Abayomi Azikwe and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is uh, Saturday, uh, September 2nd, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. Later on in our program, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the most recent coup in Gabon, where yet another former French colony has fallen to military forces. The CNSP government in Niger has demanded the withdrawal of the French ambassador from the capital of Niamey. Revelations about the 1980 assassination attempt against the martyred Libyan leader, Muammar Gaddafi, has surfaced. And the United Nations peacekeeping troops are facing protest in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. In the second hour, we look in detail at developments in Niger and Gabon over the last week. Finally, we will honor the 44th Detroit Jazz Festival with music from Regina Carter and a rare archival interview uh, with Horace Silver. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned, and we'll take our musical interlude uh, with uh, Regina Carter, Detroit's own uh, Regina Carter, who is playing uh, this year at the Detroit uh, Jazz Festival in downtown Detroit. Regina Carter was born on August the 6th of 1966. Uh, She is an African-American jazz violinist, she is the cousin of jazz saxophonist James Carter. Carter was born in Detroit and was one of three children in her family. She began paying, playing piano and taking piano lessons at the age of two after playing a melody by ear for her brother's piano teacher. After she deliberately played the wrong ending note at a concert, the piano teacher suggested she take up the violin, indicating that the Suzuki method uh, could be more conducive to her creativity. Carter's mother enrolled her at the Detroit Community Music School when she was just four years old, and she began studying the violin. She still uh, studied the piano as well as tap and ballet. As a teenager, she played in the youth division of the Detroit Symphonic Orchestra. While at school, she was able to take master classes from Isaac Perlman and Yehudi Menuhin. Carter attended Cass Technical High School with a close friend, jazz singer Carla Cook, who introduced her to Ella Fitzgerald. In high school, uh, Carter performed with the Detroit Civic Orchestra and played in pop funk uh, group uh, named Brainstorm. In addition to taking violin lessons, she also took viola, oboe, and choir lessons. Carter was studying the classical violin at the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston when she decided to switch to jazz. She transferred to Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan, where she was a jazz major under the direction of Marvin Doc Holliday. She also studied and performed with trumpeter Marcus Belgrave. Through Belgrave, uh, Carter was able to meet musicians active in the Detroit jazz scene, including Lyman Woodard. She graduated in 1985. After graduating, she taught strings in Detroit public schools, Needing a change of scene, she moved to Europe and lived in Germany for two years while making connections. She worked as a nanny for a German family and taught violin on a U.S. military base. And uh, we'll have more information on uh, the career of Regina Carter, who played uh, at uh, the Detroit Jazz Festival uh, this evening in downtown Detroit, the 44th uh, annual Detroit Jazz Festival Let's listen to a live concert of uh, Regina Carter at the Newport Jazz Festival on August 15th of 1998, some 25 years ago. Let's listen in. Well,
2: welcome, again, ladies and gentlemen, to the JVC Jazz Festival in Newport. We're on the radio affiliate
3: in Central Lincoln, one of the largest presenters of state ahead jazz to the tune of
2: 117 hours a year. you're out there, check it out.
3: To use plenty of sunscreen
2: and keep yourself uh, with lots of drinks and friendship of kind of be a hot and beautiful afternoon. And it is my privilege and my pleasure to introduce uh, the opening act of this uh, first official day of the all-day festivity here at Fort Adams State Park. Hailing from Detroit with uh, connection here in New England, by way of the New England Conservatory, having studied there uh, both classically and uh, studied in the African American music, uh, classical music and jazz. If you've ever seen or had the privilege of uh, witnessing blood on the Field, the Pulitzer Prize winning Jazz Oratorio by Lou Marsalis, there's a stunning moment when the following performer comes out and just in essence takes over the entire uh, captivity of your attention and the audience. From Detroit, Downbreak, Critics Poll winner two years in a row, Atlantic recording star, Ms. Regina Carter. (laughs)
4: This tune is a tribute to a man who helped open the doors for this instrument in the jazz idiom. People always say you can't play jazz on violin. But there have been a few of us out here and many more coming that are proving that point to be so wrong. And um, this dedication is a George Gershwin tune, and I'm dedicating it to Stephen Grappelli. Not mimicking him, but thanking him. And it's our own version of Lady Be Good, so we hope you enjoy. spend loads of time in the mirror, and you get there, and no one asks you to dance. That's what this next tune is about. Ella Fitzgerald went to a party, she says. The Duke Ellington tune, imagine my frustration. And she gets there, no one asks her to dance. Someone taps her on the shoulder and says, Don't you know, my dear? No one cares. They're not impressed. She was so distressed. Imagine my frustration at no invitation to dance. One. you mm-hmm. It's entitled Reflections. <laughs> Thank you. you. Reflection. Standing care. Thank you. I'd like to bring the rest of the band back out. <laughs> Y'all aren't off yet. <laughs> We're gonna end this set. Thank you so much. You've been a great audience. Thank you for getting up this early in the morning and coming to share some music with us. Such a beautiful day. I can't wait to get changed and enjoy the rest of the lineup today. <laughs> you got some? No, I can't. The TV cameras on. Anyway, um, you got something cold to drink up there? <laughs> some Kool-Aid. Uh, we're gonna end with a tune that was written by a friend of mine from Cuba, Oriente Lopez, and he calls this one Central Habana.
1: Welcome back, and that was the music of uh, Regina Carter, uh, who uh, was performing there at the Newport Jazz Festival in 1998. And uh, Regina Carter uh, from Detroit uh, gave a wonderful set uh, just a few hours ago at the Detroit Jazz Festival in uh, downtown Detroit. And uh, the set uh, was dedicated uh, to uh, the people of Black Bottom, Uh, who were removed uh, by a racist administration, backed up by a racist federal government uh, during the 1950s and 60s in the city of Detroit. A very, very bold uh, statement, uh, culturally, historically, and politically uh, by Regina Carter uh, earlier today in uh, the city of Detroit. Uh, You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio Broadcast. And, of course, uh, Regina Carter uh, was from uh, the city of Detroit. Uh, She attended Cass Technical High School, and uh, she also attended the school with Carter Cook, uh, who introduced her to Ella Fitzgerald. In high school, Carter performed with the Detroit Civic Orchestra, uh, played in a pop-funk group named Brainstorm. In addition to taking violin lessons, she also took viola oboe in choir lessons carter uh, was studying classical violin at the new england conservatory of music in boston when she decided to switch to jazz she transferred to oakland university uh, right outside detroit in rochester michigan uh, where she was a jazz major under the direction of marvin doc holiday she also studied and performed with trumpeter marcus belgrave and uh This is uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, We are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit in this early uh, Sunday morning, September 3rd, uh, 2023. And right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. And our lead story uh, deals uh, with the recently uh, held Uh, military coup d'etat in the west-central African state of Gabon. The leader of a coup that overthrew Gabon's president, Ali Bongo, says he wants to avoid rushing into elections that repeat past mistakes as pressure mounts to hand back power to a civilian government. A spokesman uh, for Gabon's military rulers also said on state TV they, quote, decided with immediate effect uh, to keep to reopen the land, uh, sea, and air borders as of uh, earlier yesterday. Military officers led by General Bryce Oliwi in Guayma uh, seized power on Wednesday, uh, minutes after an announcement that Bongo has secured a third term in an election. The officers placed Bongo under house arrest and installed in Guayma as head of state, ending the Bongo's family's 56-year hold on power in the oil-rich state. You can read more on the situation in Gabon uh, on the Pan-African Newswire, and also we'll have a segment on uh, developments just over the last four days in uh, the central West African state of Gabon. In other news, thousands of people have rallied in the Nigerian capital of Niamey, demanding that France withdraw its ambassador and troops from the West African country as its new military rulers have accused Nigeria's former colonial ruler of interference. The protesters gathered near a base, housing French soldiers, after a call by several civic organizations hostile to the French military presence. They held up banners proclaiming, French Army, leave our country. Niger's military government, which seized power on July 26, has accused French President Emmanuel Macron of using divisive rhetoric in his comments about the coup and seeking to impose a neocolonial relationship with his former colony. Macron has backed the ousted President Mohamed Bazoum and refused to recognize the new rulers. Sylvain Et, France's ambassador, has remained in Niger despite a 48-hour deadline to leave the country given more than a week ago A decision, Macron said, quote, he applauds, unquote. And you're listening uh, to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. In other news, a former Italian premier in an interview published uh, yesterday contended that a French Air Force missile accidentally brought down a passenger jet over the Mediterranean Sea in 1980, some 43 years ago, in a failed bid to assassinate Libya's then-leader, Mumar Gaddafi. Former two-time premier, Giuliano Amato, appealed to French President Emmanuel Macron to either refute or confirm his assertion about the cause of the crash on June 27th of 1980, which killed all 81 persons aboard the Italian domestic flight. In an interview with Rome's daily La Repubblica, Amato said he is convinced that France hit the plane while targeting a Libyan military jet. While acknowledging he has no hard proof, Amato also contended that Italy tipped off Gaddafi, and so the Libyan, who was heading back to Tripoli from a median Yugoslavia, did board the Libyan military jet. And uh, finally... Uh, In regard uh, to developments uh, in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Uh, there, of course, uh, has been protest in uh, the eastern DRC demanding uh, that the United Nations troops there leave the country. Victims of the protest in Goma uh, just recently that turned into clashes between protesters and the armed forces are being treated for severe injuries in nearby hospitals as national authorities estimate the death toll at more than 40 people with many injured. The protest was organized by a sect called the Natural Judaic Messianic Faith towards the nations and known politically at Wales Nearly 160 people were arrested on Wednesday, according to communications ministries. We were just about to start marching when suddenly we saw armed Congolese soldiers coming, they immediately opened fire on the people demonstrating and on the Wazalendo who were there. Uh, that was when I got hit by a bullet, too, explained Claude Omar, an injured demonstrator. Gomar's mayor, Faustin Napenda Capen, had banned the protest on August the 23rd, soon after it was announced. You can read more on all of these issues uh, over the Pan-African Newswire, including... The United Nations uh, on Friday demanded an independent probe after dozens of people were killed in a crackdown on an anti-UN protest in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, the DRC. There needs to be an investigation and the perpetuators need to be brought to justice, United Nations Rights Office spokesman Ravine Chamdazani told reporters in Geneva, Switzerland. The UN is in touch with the Democratic Republic of Congo authorities to ensure a probe they have opened, quote, is independent, effective, and that measures are put in place to ensure that future demonstrations are policed in line with the National Human Rights Standard, unquote. With that, uh, we'll conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. Including uh, this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners, the Pan-African Newswire is an international Electronic press service it is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Wire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to our website, and that is at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's uh, program, uh, the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcasts, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We will take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Uh, The legendary uh, John Coltrane, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast. And, of course, just this last past uh, week, there was yet another military coup d'etat, this time in the former French colony of Gabon uh, in the western uh, section of Central Africa. Let's listen to a report on developments in Gabon.
5: A military coup in Gabon, celebrations on the street, but a very different reaction globally. The takeovers being condemned by the UN, while China, Russia, the US, and EU all voice concern. So why has there been yet another coup in Africa? And what's the response of African states? This is Inside Stories. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Mohamed Jamjoum. The president of Gabon, Ali Bongo, didn't have long to celebrate his election victory this week. Within minutes of the declaration that he'd won a third term, army officers announced they were taking over. The election was controversial without international observers or journalists, with the country's borders sealed. Bongo has been president since 2009, succeeding his father, who was in power since 1967. General Brice Oligwin-Guema takes over as transitional leader, the army saying it wants to bring stability. The president of the transition insists on the need to maintain calm
6: and serenity in our beautiful country. He pledges to preserve the economic tools that
7: guarantee social prosperity at the dawn of a new era. We will guarantee the peace, stability, and dignity of our beloved Gabon.
5: President Ali Bongo is under house arrest. In an online message, he pleaded for support.
8: I don't know what's going on. So I'm calling you to make the noise, to make noise, to make noise, really.
1: I'm, I'm thanking you. Thank you.
5: We'll explore more with our guests in a moment, but first, our correspondent Nicholas Hawk has more from Senegal's capital,
9: Dakar. There is popular support for this coup because people have been expecting and waiting for the downfall of the Bongo family dynasty that have been at the helm of this country for over 55 years. What comes as a surprise is the man behind this coup, Brice Oligui Nguema, who is the head of the presidential guard, meant to protect the interests of the Bongo family. He was, in fact, a close aide to Omar Bongo, the father of Ali Bongo. And then in 2009, when Ali Bongo came to power, he was sidelined, sent as uh, defense attaché to Dakar, Senegal, and also to Morocco. During that time, the young colonel, amassed quite a lot of wealth, building multi-million dollar homes in the United States and in Gabon. Now he's distancing himself from the Bongo family, arresting his son, accusing them of treason, of, um, of abusing uh, power, of corruption, and of stealing from state coffers from this oil-rich nation in which most people live on less than $2 a day. So distancing himself, but also appeasing foreign interests the French and the Chinese who have uh, interest, vested interest in the oil business and also in the mineral business. We haven't heard from the opposition, Jean Ping, but also Albert Onda Osa, who's been the political opponent to Ali Bongo during Saturday's presidential election. Also muted reaction from the regional countries, from Equatorial um, Guinea, but also from Cameroon. Not a surprise because they probably fear contagion of coups. Paul B. has been in power since 1982 and President Obiang has been in power since 1979, but this coup is a break from the past and a hope that this can rebuild trust in the democratic institutions in Gabon. Nicholas Hawke for Inside Story.
1: Welcome back. And uh, we, of course, have been following uh, the situation uh, in the West African state of Gabon. And uh, that uh, was an updated report on events uh, in that country. And of course, uh, we are here at the Pan African Journal, a worldwide
5: uh, radio broadcast. And of course, uh, we are live
1: in downtown. All right, let's go
5: ahead and bring in our guests. In Libreville, capital of Gabon, is Antoine Lawson. He's a veteran journalist who's reported on Africa and Gabon for more than three decades. In Arusha, in Tanzania, is Stella Agara. She's an analyst on African government affairs and in Nigeria's capital Abuja is Lassan Wedrogo, Research Fellow at the Center for Democracy and Development there. His work focuses on governance in West Africa. A warm welcome to you all and thanks so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Antoine, let me start with you today. There was jubilation across Gabon after news of the coup. You are there in Libreville. Where do things stand now?
6: Yes, the situation is very calm after the coup two days before. And uh, the new commander-in-chief of the the group, Brice Clotaire, OED, Gema, is now the president of the transition since yesterday. Okay, everything uh, is starting to be uh, very quiet today, and uh, everything, uh, the business has opened this morning, and uh, they have called the population to continue to do what they have to do every day. So, what is new today? is that the former minister and economist, Mr. Raymond Donsima, tries to speak to the group of military officers today and to ask them if it was a good idea to interrupt the electoral process. And they ask them how long they are going to stay in power before they put the civil or uh, Mr. Uh, professor uh, who won the election two days before. So the, the situation is still confused regarding how to lead the country because in a response of the coup, the military says that the country is going through several institutional political crisis, but now the military does not know how to lead the country. This is the, the, the more, more important situation now in the
5: uh, Lasan, after the coup, we heard expressions of concern and condemnation from the UN, from France, the US, African leaders, Russia, China, and the EU. What does it what does it mean that there is such rare international consensus on this issue within today's very polarized world?
10: Absolutely, um, I feel like the international. Community is caught in this, uh, coup whereby in principle they have to condemn the coup, but at the same time, it's kind of like, okay, we understand what is going on here. Um, that's almost as if the coup is coming to relieve people from, um, a situation whereby Ali Bongo was to win the election in a, in a very, very controversial manner. And we, don't know what could have come out of that election either in terms of uh, post-election violence, but the coup stepped in to actually um,
5: set things back to to, to zero, basically. Uh, Stella, uh, General Naguema, who was named as the transitional leader, um, he was head of the presidential guard that had pledged to protect President Bongo. He's also related, as I understand it, to the deposed leader. The fact that such a close aide to President Bongo has now been appointed to lead the transition. What message does that impart to those inside and outside the country?
11: Uh, Thank you very much. And I think there are a number of things we need to consider about that appointment. One is the possibility that the more things change, the more they will remain the same. And this is truly dependent on whether Nguema himself is loyal to the deposed president or if he is truly committed to change. Sometimes you could find family members who are in total disagreement with how or why people, their family members do certain things. But if it is in alignment, it then means this would be a, a, a coup, you know, in vain. To, so to say. And and uh, the other thing that it says is that there's a possibility that the negotiations that are happening may impact what or the desired change in different ways. For example, for the locals, one of the things that they must do now is to manage their expectations, to stop celebrating, and to find a way to communicate uh, their interests and communicate the demands that they had for this change, if this is what they desired, especially uh, uh, evidenced by the celebrations we have seen amongst them. But for foreign nations, it, it may also present an opportunity for, for some of the, 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 the foreign nations that have been interfering or at least influencing politics in Gabon to continue working with this gentleman to advance the agenda that they have. Have been advancing in the region. Unfortunately some of that agenda is not good for for the country, and so they need to check to ensure that as they transition this does not find its way into the other side of this conversation once they are able to return to constitutional order, which we kind of hope that they are going to do very soon.
5: Antoine, picking up on some of what Stella just said, um, the fact that General Nguema is part of the elite in Gabon, are there those in Gabon who are worried that this will mean that it's just more of the same going forward?
6: Yes, I think I think Mr. Ngema is a cousin of the Ali Bongo, the former president, and uh, the the Bongo era is continued because it's the same family. In fact, uh, the Bongo has run the has run the country since more than 50 years already. But I think if uh, uh, Bricotier ngema stay in power again, uh, this means that the era of Bongo continue. To lead to lead the country, It's the reason why the Ali Bongo was not killed. He uh, could have been killed after the coup, but I think there is some arrangement, and the, the team uh, tried to, to 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 avoid the cow in 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 Gabon. Okay, what is very important is what is going after this coup. Uh, we don't think that uh, military officers are uh, able to to, to leave the country as maybe uh, the, the, t- the, the former team used to, to do that, because there is no minister, everything was, uh, there is no minister, uh, uh, the Senate, everything, it was uh, canceled in, in Gabon. And uh, the leader said, the president is, in, uh, uh, is arrested in his uh, residence, and uh, you have seen yesterday, for example, the president uh, uh, was able to send a video on the Internet. I think that they have made some arrangements.
5: Uh, Stella, I saw you reacting to some of what Antoine was saying there, and it looked like you wanted to jump in, so uh, please go ahead.
11: So so the reason why I was reacting to what uh, uh, he he was saying is because we definitely know that, for example, the President got assistance to send out uh, that information if he was under uh, house arrest of the palace by, by the military. But more importantly is the fact that he was calling on individuals outside of the country to to come out and support him, he was calling on individuals outside of the country to make noise. When you start calling on people outside your country to, to make noise, it basically means you do not trust entirely that you have that kind of legitimacy on the ground. And the question is what contentions do his people have against him? We already know about uh, the, the the number of years he has been in power, the need for, for, for change of guard in the country, the interest of the country in, in, in ensuring that then their, 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 their own uh, interests are taken care of. But speaking of, of, of uh, calling on people outside the country, there are very many uh, um, foreign governments that have spoken on this matter. There are very many foreign voices that have come in and when I say for foreign, I mean both international and African Union uh, ECOWAS voices that have spoken on this matter. They all have very specific interests. We have uh, governments around uh, this country that are desperately in need of ensuring that this thing that is happening in in, in Gabon, previously happened in Niger, does not transfer to happen uh, in their countries. uh, I was just uh, interacting with some information just before the Mm. broadcast about changes that are being made in Cameroon to ensure that then the defense force has a different Mm. kind of leadership. Panicking, And then, apart from panicking, there is also the sense that this unconstitutional change of government thing is going to become a thing in the continent, we have a lot mm. of dictators. Well, but then there's another group of people who are coming into this conversation, like the government of, of France, who then are protecting their interests in something that most of those countries are fighting against. Right, Lassan been... I'm
5: sorry to interrupt you, but I, I do want to pick up on that point you're making about France and France's relationship with Gabon, but, but I also want to go to Lassan and pick up on another m- thing you mentioned. Um, Lassan Stella was talking also about the coup that happened just about five weeks ago in Niger, and I want to ask you how different it is what transpired in Niger versus what happened in Gabon.
10: You see, the Gabon coup, there's a lot of, obviously there's a lot that we don't know yet about the Gabon coup, but what we can also see in terms of uh, comparison with the coup in in Niger is that this is more likely a very ceremonial coup d'état, a coup d'état whereby, you know, there has not been any internal opposition. And contrary to the coup in Niger, we have not seen people come out in protest, holding foreign flags, Russian flags, unlike what you've seen in the Sahel. So basically, uh, the reaction of the Gabonese people was uh, in terms of, uh, okay, now we are getting rid of uh, this dynasty that has been in power for so long, but there's no discourse, at least for the moment, I haven't seen any response from the Gabonese mm. people in terms of, uh, okay, we are defending our interests, we are, we are going to do anything to defend our interests. And if you listen to the Appeal that uh, Bongo issued on a video call. He did it on uh, in English, not in French. I understand that Gabon is now part of the Commonwealth, which is also something to consider here. Why is Gabon a former French colony, a member of uh, the Commonwealth? What has been going on in terms of the uh, Franco-Gabonese relationship to the point where Gabon will seek? To join the commonwealth so i think if we go back a few years ago when uh maybe not a few years a few months ago when uh, macron visited gabon to talk about uh, uh climate change and everything the gabonese people reaction to the arrival of uh, the president of france was also showing signs mm. that there is a disconnection between or at least there's a departure from uh uh, what we had always known as France for free, France in Africa.
5: Um, let me let me so also ask I, you. Sorry to interrupt, but let me also ask you further about the reaction that we've heard thus far from uh, African leaders and institutions. Uh, you know, on Wednesday, Nigerian President Bola Tinubu, uh, he's the current chair of the West African bloc ECOWAS. He said he was working closely with other African leaders to contain what he called a contagion of autocracy spreading across Africa. Uh, Time after time when these coups happen, and there have been a lot of coups as we mentioned earlier uh, recently, we see condemnation from African leaders and we hear talk of proposals to try to to settle these disputes and end these crises, but not much seems to happen. Why have these institutions and leaders not been more effective?
10: I think that uh, these institutions have failed fundamentally to address the symptoms, the, the reason, the root causes of coup d'etat. They uh, rather come late to address the symptoms when the, the disease is already in. And uh, today it's hard to say, it, but it's no longer a matter of uh, uh, what is next. It's, we can even say it's a matter of who is next, because we see a number of African countries where the situation is not good at all. The the situation, the governance situation is very bad. And our regional organizations are not reacting to that. They are not pre-reacting um, and saying, look, um, the election is not going well. Even Tinubu himself has not been, uh, you know, he has been recently elected, but the election has issues. Fortunately, the Nigerian people took the case to the court. And that is being decided while the president has sworn in to be a president. I think that itself is a very problematic issue mm. that our regional organization, African Union, needed to address. But since we failed to address those, um, what comes next when the military see an opportunity to see mm. power? And we shouldn't forget that those are also citizens and uh, they they have families who are members of our communities and they mm-hmm. understand the predicament in which uh, those kind of poor, poor leadership is taking them into. Mm.
5: Uh, Antoine, um, often when news of these coups emerge, there's a lot of talk about democratic backsliding in a volatile region. Uh, I want to ask you if it's fair to mention that in the context of what happened in Gabon, because there had been a lot of allegations that fraud had taken place in the elections over the weekend, uh, the Bongo family has has ruled uh, Gabon for 56 years. So, is it actually accurate to say that the coup is evidence of erosion of democracy in Gabon?
6: But I don't I don't think I don't think so. The, the main problem in Gabon is that the uh, the population is getting poor and poor. This is a population, Gabon is a population of uh, less than 2 million habitants and the half of the population is living in the capital Libreville. In the, there is nine regions in Gabon, but Libreville is the capital, uh, there is about more than uh, around 1 million habitants in Libreville. And the people are living very, it's very difficult for the everyday living, for the families, and uh, they don't understand why there is a group of people in power, they use the money and just spread the money, and uh, they, they they don't have anything to eat. For example, because in in Gabon, there are some families that don't have uh, more than two dollars a day for the everyday living. You know, the, the country is rich. We have oil, we have uh, wood, and there's uh, some uh, raw material like uh, manganese. But uh, it was possible for all the what we have in Gabon to be able to have. Uh, very good country like in Libya, for example. This is, this is, uh, uh, Gabon was one of the, the, the richest uh, country in Africa. Mm-hmm. And now you see there is in Equatorial Guinea, there is some more development. The population is small, but they have enough money. But the money in Gabon is not distributed very equally to all the sections of the population. This is a problem. People are not glad for the, but they mm-hmm. think that this coup maybe can bring something better, but I am not sure because the people, the, the military under power now, maybe they don't know how to run the country.
5: Uh, Stella, I had interrupted you earlier when you were starting to make a point about Gabon's relationship with France. Uh, Gabon, like Niger, was also a French, uh, former French colony. Uh, Gabon is one of France's closest allies in the region. How much influence is France losing across the region at this point?
11: I'm glad you asked that question and I'm glad you interrupted me so that this conversation could go around because I want to pick up from where Antoine has left. Um, Gabon has been led by this family dynasty for over 65 years, and so it it is not that that is the main trigger now for them to to get rid of their president. The environment is ripe for a coup because of the other circumstances that are leading to this. We are coming out of a pandemic. We are currently at the center of a global economic recession, and these people have to figure out how to survive. The relationship with France is such that Gabon is one of the nations that has been paying colonial tax to the government of France up to the tune of 500 billion USD. That is not small money considering that it's collected from 14 of the poorest nations in the region. Gabon happens to be, a, to be a very wealthy country, and I think Antoine has mentioned about their, their wealth in manganese, timber, and oil, et cetera. And so they're definitely paying a lot out, and yet their people are staying hungry. At some point, when you push an individual and push a citizen to the wall, eventually, they're going to be need their reactions. And part of the reason why France is losing influence in the region is because all of those countries are beginning to ask, why do we have wealth? Why do we have resources, and we have to pay so much outside? That, of course, would explain why there are military coups. But apart from having military coups, there is resistance also to the voice of of France asking them about anything, or at least taking a moral high ground on their situation. And and you you have seen those kinds of situations repeating themselves, even to the point of, of Niger. France is losing influ- influence because this thing that they continue to do is an injustice to those countries. Even if you are collecting compensation for what you. Built in a country during uh, well, at the time when you're colonising them, surely you cannot collect uh, um, um, compensation in perpetuity. Number two is that the influence that has been held over that region has not changed the region in. In any way, in any case, it has continued to put these people under abject poverty, with people living on less than a dollar or two dollars a day. And of course, that kind of indignity cannot be sustained or accepted by humans for a very long time. At some point, it has to stop. Unfortunately, the people who suffer are the women and the children in the society because coups generally do not recognize the interests of women and children, and many of them do not rise uh, to the top even after a coup.
5: Uh, Lassana, we spoke a little bit earlier about uh, the international condemnation that we've heard thus far from several uh, international actors. Uh, I want to ask you, where do you see this going forward when it comes to uh, the reaction in, in the days, weeks and months ahead from the international players? And is there an international actor that would be able to step in uh, from your vantage point and actually try to resolve any of this? I think the international community involvement
10: in Gabon will be purely based on specific interest that each one of those countries have in 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 Gabon. Uh when the Chinese issue a statement, uh they condemn the coup but they do not uh address the question of the election whether the election was fair and transparent. Nobody is talking about that. And in that matter the Opposition and the Guinean, uh, the Gabonese people are the losers in this uh, in this story. Um, when the French condemn the coup, they do not condemn it the same energy which they have used to condemn the coups in Niger and elsewhere. When uh, the rest of uh, of the West condemned the coup, including African Union. And, you know, it's just a a basic uh, way of saying, look, in principle, we do not agree with coup d'etat. But I'm quite sure that all of these international actors are going to find ways to maintain the system. Uh, You know, there will not be a lot of pressure on this military regime to transition quickly toward uh, uh, to give power to civilians. And if they do that, um, they will also work toward maintaining the same statu quo that allowed the international uh, partners, which I believe are equally liable to the suffering Mm. of the Guinean, of uh, the Gabonese people, in as much as uh, they have been involved for many years, Mm. working with Bongo Father and Ali Bongo. It's, It's so unfair to the Gabonese people. When you think that this nation, is extremely rich in natural resources and only has two million people. That is, for God's sake, less than the size of uh, the population of uh, Abuja or Lagos mm. or Ouagadougou for that. So it, it doesn't make sense that with such a small number of people, mm. we are unable to meet their basic needs. And at the same time, you are collaborating with nations that mm. claim to be democratic. It doesn't make any sense. It's just ridiculous and in a international
5: La- relations. Lassane, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, but, but we are very much running out of time. We only have about a minute and a half left, and I just want to give the last word to Antoine because he is there in Libreville on the ground. Uh, Antoine, please keep in mind we only have about a minute and a half left. I just want to ask you about the fact that the military is promising stability. From your vantage point uh, and from what you're hearing from others in Gabon, do you think that's possible?
6: I think I think it is this, it is possible if yes, you have to be optimistic what uh can be done for the country, but uh, I think that uh, uh, France, uh, President Macron has to change the way they lead the politics in uh, the uh, uh, African-French speaking countries. This is very important because what they they are doing in Africa since maybe 50 years is to take everything from African uh, community and say, don't give uh, nothing in return. This is very important to develop a country. the, the, the French people, the French government had to do, and they know now things are, ch- are changing. And what happened in a, in Niger, in a, Burkina Faso, everything move now in Central Africa, in Gabon. Maybe in a few months, in a few years, something will happen in Equatorial Guinea or in Congo. This is a, mm. this is this is, this is certain because this is a, a very good, a very good position for Africans to mm. to, to make. Uh, uh, the politics and the, this is not good for for the, the democratic uh, mm. uh, view of the, the African countries. It is a, a shame to see that now people cannot live under reserve and reserve, they are very rich. The country is rich and people cannot have there is no student. All 80 percent of the students in Gabon are learning in Europe,
5: in in America, in Canada. There is no I...
6: university in Gabon.
5: Antoine, I I am sorry to cut you off, but we have run out of time. Uh, Thanks so much to you and all of our other guests, uh, Antoine Lawson, Stella Agara, and Lassan Woodrago. And thank you too for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com. And for further discussion, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. You can also join the conversation on X, formerly known as Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. For me, Mohammed Jamjoum and the whole team here, bye for now.
1: That was a report, the recent political and military developments in the state of Gabon, a former French colony in the western regions of Central Africa. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast for the early morning hour of Sunday, September 3rd, 2023, and we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now we want to move into a segment on Niger and its standoff with uh, the French foreign ministry. Let's listen in.
0: Niger's coup leaders and France are in a standoff. The military wants to cut ties with the former colonial power. President Macron refuses to recognize their takeover. So how might this end? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program, I'm Folie Batibo. Five weeks ago, Niger was seen as the West's most stable ally in the Sahel region of Africa. But a coup at the end of July has turned that upside down. Ousted President Mohamed Bazoum is under house arrest. The former colonial power, France, refuses to recognize the military takeover. President Emmanuel Macron insists his ally Bazoum is still the legitimate leader. Demonstrators waving Russian as well as Nigerian flags want to cut links with France, accusing it of exploitation. So, how might this end? We'll talk to our guests in just a moment, but first, let's hear from Niger and our correspondent, Ahmed Idris.
8: The security forces at this military base, on our right, are having a difficult time controlling the crowd. An unprecedented number of protesters have besieged the military base here in Escadrille. They want to move in forcefully to confront the French soldiers. An estimated 1,500 French soldiers are thought to be or believed to be inside this camp, and they want them out. One of the main uh, defence and military agreements between Niger and and France has expired last night, and so. Because of that, they are ramping up pressure on the French to move out. And on the part of the military junta, they also have given directives that they want the French ambassador to Niger, whose deadline uh, to move out of the country has expired about a week ago. They want to evict him out of his residence or out of his embassy, wherever he is, to move out of the country because they said his diplomatic immunity and status and that of his family have been revoked. Now. Uh, People here in Niger, uh, including the military junta, feel that the country has not been treated fairly in the imposition of sanctions by the economic community of West African States. Analysts and activists say those sanctions are impacting more on the ordinary people on the streets here in uh, Niger Republic. Remember, Niger is a country that is largely dependent on financial and uh, food aid from the international community. Now, with the suspension of operations of non-governmental organizations, as well as the sanctions imposed by the African Union, the economic community of West African states, and other international institutions, things are getting more and more difficult for the ordinary Nigerian. Inflation has also gone through the roof. Ahmed Idris, Al Jazeera, for Inside Story in Yemen.
0: Well, let's take a look at links between France and Niger. France colonized the West African country in 1898 and ruled for more than 60 years. Niger gained its independence in 1960, and despite local hostility, some French troops remain until today. France imports uranium from Niger and is its top export partner. Regional and European leaders have condemned the coup. They say French troops must remain in the fight against rebel groups in the Sahel region but coup supporters say they are fed up with a former colonial power telling their country what to do well let's bring in our guest now for today's show joining us from paris is nicolas normand he's a former french ambassador to mali senegal and the republic of the congo from Abuja is Kabir Adamu. He's managing director at Beacon Consultancy, a security risk management consultancy. And joining us from Cape Town is Leonard mboulin who's He's a researcher at the Institute for Democracy, Citizenship and Public Policy in Africa at the University of Cape Town. A warm welcome to you all, gentlemen. Thank you very much for joining us on Inside Story. Ambassador Nicolas Normand in Paris, let me start with you if I can. The people of Niger, not just the Junta, wants to cut ties with France. Why is France digging in its heels? Why refuse to comply with the expulsion order for Sylvain Itay?
7: Well, the answer is simple. France does not recognize the, the coup leaders as a legal president. You know that despite being detained and despite being under pressure, President Bazoum the former president, the legal president, the elected president, has not resigned. So we, we, France recognizes him as the sole president and does not want to comply with an expulsion order or any order mm. coming from the coup leaders, from the...
0: Yeah. Well, we had somewhat of a similar situation, Ambassador, in Mali where there was also a coup there. The French Ambassador was recalled by Paris then. What's different between that situation and this one where some say France is putting its envoy at risk?
7: It's very different because in Mali, the President did resign. He did sign a letter of resignation that's not the case at all in niger so the situation in niger is very peculiar very strange Mm. uh, because there are two presidents actually one legal and one de facto president and we recognize only the legal one Uh, we must also uh, stress that the president bazoum the one who is detained, still uh, gets in touch, gets in contact with world leaders, including right. French presidents. Yeah, we, we also expressed that he was a strong line of France.
0: Right. We, we, we did indeed hear from President Macron, who said he spoke to uh, President Bazoum on the phone almost every day. But I wa- what I wanted to get from you, uh, Ambassador Normand, is uh, find out why why France is today willing to put the safety and security of its Uh, soldiers who are in Niger at risk and also of its ambassador at risk by digging in on this issue?
7: Well, the French um, have taken a very uh, firm position, a very firm stance. In my own opinion, it's a lost cause because uh, President Bazoum will not uh, be, uh, will not get power again. He will uh, not be handed power back, you know. So we are on a very inflexible, very President Macron is very adamant about that, but uh, finally we will have to pull out from Niger. The the ambassador will finally be uh, expelled because there will be uh, finally a solution to the the stalemate, uh, which is the current situation Mm. from a political point of view.
0: Do you think President Macron's close relationship with President Bazoum is what's guiding his decisions and his actions on Niger right now?
7: Well, you know, President Macron uh, hoped at first that President Bazoum could be restored to power under the pressure, well, because the coup leaders were under the pressure of the sanctions of the ECOWAS, the local uh, regional organization. But the the coup leaders are also very inflexible. They are Mm -hmm. very adamant that they are going to keep uh, their power. So it is really a stalemate, and uh, I think finally the winner will be the cool leaders.
0: Okay, let's uh, bring in uh, Kabir into the conversation. Kabir, as Ambassador Normand just said there, we are in a stalemate, a standoff, and each side seems to be digging in. How, first of all, do you evaluate the way France has handled this crisis in Niger, and how do you think the uh, uh, Nigerian army, the new leadership, will eventually respond? Well,
12: um, it's clearly um, a stalemate and an escalation of a very um, delicate situation. Um, It appears to me that um, France is uh, looking for an excuse, as it were, to use uh, possibly some element of force um, within Niger. Um, Otherwise, I cannot see how France um, is endangering uh, a very critical component of its um, foreign relations, its ambassador. And then the military deployment um, in in Niger. Uh, part of the argument is the interpretation of the agreement um, that allows France to deploy troops on the Nigerian side. The junta is been they've given Niger a month, which is speculated within the agreement. And then the, the French side is saying, no, we do not have. Uh, the legitimacy to issue that uh, ultimatum of, of one month. So it's a very interesting um, period in international relations. How this play, plays out may become precedence as it were for, um, you know, the interpretation of um, the sovereignty of um, states uh, to take certain actions. And uh, um, the, the tendency for this to es- escalate into a bigger issue is extremely high. Um, okay. That. Uh, the the video that you've shown with people stationed right outside the embassy, um, anything could go wrong at that point in time. And I know the ability of...
0: Yeah, indeed, it it is a very tense situation. Leonard, your thoughts about how France has handled this situation in Niger and also perhaps how the military is handling it right now, the new leadership. They seem to be uh, adamant and at the same time cautious, it would seem, as to what they do next.
13: Yes, I think um, France has taken a zero-sum approach um, so far. However, they're trying to take this approach. Meanwhile, they don't have leverage to pursue that because as um, the Ambassador stated, they don't legally recognize the military junta in power. However, in practice, they have been controlling affairs for the past month. They've been able to establish relations with regional powers, and despite their suspension from ECOWAS and the African Union, they've still been able to maintain control over the, um, the extent of the territories, as well as to pursue various political, mm-hmm. socio-economic, um, and other uh, society-wide engagement. Kabi so doesn't regard, agree
0: with you this, on that.
13: Yeah, um, just to correct the the point around
12: the ability that they've been able to establish relations with regional authorities, no, Um, ECBOA still describes the development as an attempted coup. AU describes the development as an attempted coup. Um, The only uh, element that has remained more or less neutral is the United States. They've called it, they are yet to call it a coup. Um, They sent um, an envoy to Niger and again the interpretation of an envoy meeting Um, An illegitimate government, um, depending on where you stand in international relations, is of course subject to the interpretation on whether that is recognition or or not. But it's clear that um, all the multilateral agencies have not recognized uh, the coup in in Niger.
0: Okay. Uh, Ambassador, let me come back to you. All right. Uh, Leonard, Leonard, go ahead. Go ahead and respond and then I'll come back to the ambassador. Yeah, go ahead.
13: I didn't say regional authority, regional neighbors, for example, Mali and Burkina Faso have stipulated their support and they even sent military aid in the form of jets to um, Niger in the event that there was going to be an an ECOWAS regional military force deployed to that country. Um, They haven't gotten a full endorsement, But nevertheless, Guinea's uh, military government has also condemned the sanctions. So I didn't say at a a regional institutional level. I've noted that African Union and ICWAT has um, suspended them. But nevertheless, they have gotten the endorsement and support from regional neighbors such as Mali and Burkina Faso, which also have military governments.
0: Yeah, regional neighbors which are also under sanctions because of the coups in, in those countries, in Mali and Burkina Faso, it's worth pointing out. Ambassador, let me come back to you. And uh, Kabir mentioned the relationship with the uh, U.S. there and the U.S. not recognizing this as a coup. I'll come back to that in just a moment because there have been some reports that suggest that there is some tension perhaps between Paris and Washington right now on this issue of Niger. But I wanted to ask you about um, the question of military intervention. Kabir said that perhaps the French could be looking for an excuse to intervene militarily in Niger. Would France do that, you think? If perhaps ECOWAS was to ask for some sort of intervention, would France intervene militarily?
7: Well, the threat of ECOWAS to have a military intervention is not credible. They have not the means to do it, and politically it is not feasible, you know. There will be a crowd uh, preventing them from uh, going forward and so on. So there will be no military intervention by ECOWAS, and no, neither by ECOWAS nor by France. France for France it, it's totally ruled out anyway. Uh, the problem is not that. The problem is that the French are diplomatically isolated. You mentioned the American stunts. the the Americans are the most flexible. They have not even recognized that there is a coup. They say it is an effort to to interrupt a normal process or to seize power by force. It is an effort to disrupt the constitution. It is at most an attempted coup, but it's not a coup. Uh, For France, it is a coup, we are clear about that. Uh, But we are the only country within Europe to support the idea of a military intervention by ECOWAS, even if it is not credible. So uh, we have a very hostile uh, stance uh, against uh, Niger, and uh, this is a bit awkward, because uh, finally the winners are, are the coup leaders who can uh, denounce France as a hostile uh, power. So they take advantage of that, you know, uh, because there is a strong uh, anti-French sentiment in uh, Niamey, the capital, uh, and so they, they capitalise on that. So mm. French uh, give them uh, um, uh, means to to, to be more anti-French, you know.
0: Kabir, let me come to you. Uh, the, the ambassador talked there about a possible military intervention by ECOWAS, and they did threaten to intervene. but. That seems to have somewhat uh, become more quiet now. Do you think that's likely to happen? An intervention by ECOWAS?
12: Um, I agree with the ambassador that um, it's theoretically. I wouldn't use the word impossible, but difficult. Um, military interventions can have different, uh, you know, re- re- um, uh, um, in, um, explanations and um, manifestations. Um, now, given the size of Niger. Um, and several other uh, issues including, for instance, the political element that the ambassador spoke about. If you use Nigeria as an example, clearly um, the president has not gotten the kind of support he would have um, wanted. But there is, a, there is a constitutional provision that would allow him to use executive powers if it comes to that. Now, other um, regional powers such as Côte d'Ivoire and to an extent Ghana, um, have also indicated um, support for um, such a military intervention. Now, right. there are several determinants, but I think the most important one that we should not run away from is this, the domino effect that the heads of state of um, member states seem to be running away from. When you have a situation, someone is protecting his own position, then anything can happen. So I wouldn't use impossible, but it right. is difficult.
0: All right, Leonard Mboulé Nzingé, the ambassador, uh, alluded to the fact that the military in Niger, the new leadership there has been capitalizing on this growing anti-French sentiment there. And we've seen huge protests outside the French embassy, the French military base. Uh, It's unclear whether that is reflective, of course, of the wider population, because I I imagine that those against the coup would not be able to speak freely uh, about about it. how much longer do you think the new military leadership can continue to capitalize on this? Is there a clear plan in place, you think, they have, to, to move the country forward and transition to democracy? Do they have a plan in place?
13: Um, as you said, the military has done uh, quite a good job in trying to use um, the anti-French sentiment as a mobilization strategy, as well as to derive political capital. Um, and support beyond Niger's borders, as they've seen in Mali and uh, Burkina Faso, and beyond. And as well as on social media, people have saluted the um, coup and the fact that they consider it a way of pushing away France from continued influence in the country and some sort of second independence for Niger as a country and the West African region in general. Um, concerning the way forward, I think that the military junta is trying to. By time, the, mm-hmm. you know, if they expel the ambassador, it situates that you know, the international influence, which was most adamant to have them return Bazoum the power, wouldn't necessarily have a representative on the ground. And symbolically, that's very important because, as I said, the ambassador is the representative of uh, France's government. And if he's not there, it, institutes, it indicates that um, you know, there's a way forward in terms of engaging with other international partners, such as the US, which mm-hmm. have been more pragmatic. And as the ambassador described, they haven't necessarily um, turned it as a coup. So right. I think that they're yeah, the buying time, but then the plan isn't necessarily as clear as one would expect at, after this amount of time in control of Niger.
0: Kabir, do you agree with that? They're buying time. And how long do you think they can ride on this anti-French sentiment wave?
12: It's going to be a battle between the effect of the economic sanction, um, uh, of course. They are banking on the local support that they've been able to gather so far. But then at at a point um, Nigerians will have to choose between supporting them and then, of course, the effect of the sanctions on them. We're already seeing um, that playing out. Um, the second point is there is a rally now around um, a short um, transition period. Um, just earlier this week, the Nigerian president muted at the idea of a nine-month um, transition period. Before then, um, the Algerians put forward a six-month transition period, but the, the junta has indicated a three-year period. So I think um, that's uh, what the next step would be, what mm. transition period. To- uh, and then, of course, um, the various multilateral partners, um, the diplomatic uh, bilateral partners would also come in to agree around that, the, the time period for that, that transition.
0: Ambassador Norma, what is the next step as, as far as France is concerned, Ambassador? If, as you say, reinstating Bazoum is a lost cause, then what happens next? How does France settle this crisis?
12: Well, it will
7: end up uh, by uh, a France withdrawal, there is no doubt about that. But uh, the problem is that uh, who is the winner in this crisis? The the winner are the Jihadists, you know, there is a a very serious insurgency, uh, an Islamist insurgency in this country. The French were there only to assist the, the Nigerian army, Uh, to combat, to fight uh, the jihadists. Uh, But what about about France's economic
0: interests, Ambassador, in Niger? It's uranium mining. France needs uranium, its energy needs in Niger. What about that? I mean, isn't that a concern for France? It's energy uh, independence.
7: It's not important for France. We have many other providers. Uh, Niger is a small producer of uranium, and uh, the the main producers for France, the main providers for France are uh, uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Australia and Canada. So we don't need uh, Niger and its uranium. We were there only for security interests and to fight terrorism. Uh, And and, you know, the coup leaders are not really interested in fighting the jihadists. They are interested in their personal gains. They, they took power to enrich themselves, not to uh, improve the situation in terms of security. It, right. This is not their motive. It's clear. It is clear. Okay.
0: okay, both Kabir and Leonard seem to disagree with you. Kabir, I'll start with you. The ambassador says France wasn't there uh, for, for its interest. It's not interested in Niger's uranium. Uh, and that it was just there to help the fight against armed groups, groups in the region. What, what do you respond?
12: Um, in summary, I mean, it's very important that France recognizes that its post-colonial policies in Africa is failing or has failed. Um, I mean, why is, uh, why are we not seeing the type of reactions in other um, countries? Why is it that it's in, in French um, former colonies that we're seeing that? So it, it's absolutely important that France starts from that point of view. Now, speaking about security, about economic interests, the reality on ground is different. It's French companies that are mining the re- uranium. The agreements are skewed in the favour of, of France, not in the favour of Niger. And um, I mean, there's there's not no part of the economy of Niger that you speak about that does not reflect that. Then, with regards to security, despite the presence of French troops in Niger and the Sahel, um, Sahel has emerged as the most um, terrorist ravaged um, part of the world at the moment so it's very difficult to convince the Nigerian. I mean as an academic I can look at the data and look at other considerations but for the average Nigerian it's almost impossible to convince him that the French presence there is in his interest and that is what France needs to deal with.
0: Okay Leonard your your response to what the ambassador said.
13: Yeah um, I have to fully disagree I mean you look at the uh Post-colonial um, cooperation, of course, the cooperation agreement, and they stipulated that you know France should have um, preferential access to the various precious minerals, including uranium, and you know French companies such as uh, what was formerly known as Areva, I think the Cabranol, have had preferential access and have derived significant um, benefits and profits as a result of unrivalled competition um, by carrying out activities in um, Niger. Um, I'd like to ask the ambassador how uh, France would feel if, for example, um, the Chinese or, say, the Russians would have access to that uranium. And that's something which, um, you know, in terms of French, not only foreign policy, but as well as overseas economic diplomacy, um, it's not an option that they would like to have entertained. So Mm. saying that France is only there for security motives. I mean, the security issues in Niger and the Sahel only emerged over the past 10 to 15 years, and it is one of the uh, extensive, but then France's involvement with respect to uranium extraction has has prevailed for almost 50 years. So let's I allow the ambassador to
0: respond. Let's allow the ambassador to respond. Ambassador, a good question that uh, Leonard poses there: How would France feel if the Chinese or the Russians were to get access to the uranium in Niger?
1: Well, you know, those
7: agreements that were mentioned are fakes. There are no such agreements. There is no preferential access for the French. This is totally wrong. It's a fake agreement. I must stress that fact. Uh, And also, if we wanted to keep those uranium mines, we would get along with the agenda. We would would get along with any government. It's not the case at all. We neglect uh, our possible economical interest in that crisis given that we stick to principles only. Uh, so we were there at the request of the government, the same in Mali and Burkina. If the governments do not want the French to assist them in the fighting against the Jihadists, we are going to step down to withdraw from those countries. But it is already the case in Mali and Burkina Faso. And uh, in the following uh, the withdrawal of the French, the security situation has deteriorated a lot. There are Ambassador, much isn't, more,
0: uh, yeah. Yeah. Ambassador, sorry to interrupt you because we're coming towards yes, the end of the show, but I just wanted to put this question to you. Isn't the reality of the situation today that France is losing its last strategic foothold in this region, in the West Africa Sahel region, where other coups have already, as you mentioned, forced it to withdraw troops elsewhere in Mali and uh, Burkina Faso? Is this a strategic defeat but also a psychological defeat today for France.
7: You are right it is a humiliation because we are we have not adjusted our position to to the changes on the ground but you know um, the loser is not the french because we can we are we have no uh, um, strong interest in the region Uh, aside from fighting the terrorists. So the losers are the the countries, but as I told you, their interest is not in fighting terrorists. Their interest is for the military, for the coup leaders to seize power for themselves, for their their personal gains. Uh, This is really a tragedy because the situation is deteriorating because of those uh, selfish interests.
0: Kabir, in Abuja, I'll give you the last word. The ambassador says the loser is not France. What are your thoughts about this? And what next in this crisis? How do you see it ending?
12: The premise of the um, ambassador's assumption is that um, African countries are not capable. Uh, uh, Now, there is some element of truth in that. But that does not allow um, the possibility that perhaps at this point in time African countries are waking up to the reality that they can do better. And I think um, the next stage which we hope to see from African leaders is an investment in human capital to allow for um, management and control of the resources within Africa. It will take time but that process has to begin. In terms of the resolution of the crisis, I've mentioned earlier on there is um, a rally in around a shorter transition period and I think that's what the next few days, which would tell us, depending on how this escalation of, um, uh, you know, the situation between Niger and France goes.
0: Gentlemen, thank you very much for a very insightful discussion. Thank you. Ambassador Nicolas Normand. Kavir Adamu, Leonard Mbule Zige, thank you for joining us on Inside Story. And thank you too for watching. You can always watch this program again anytime by visiting our website at aljazeera.com. For further discussion, go to our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. Of course, you can join the conversation on X, formerly known as Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Fully Batibo, and the whole team here in Doha, thanks for watching. Bye for now.
3: Good evening, this is Dan McCloskey with a special one-hour version
14: of All Night Jazz tonight. We'll be presenting part one of a two-part interview with jazz pianist Horace Silver. Part two will be heard tomorrow night, that's Sunday night at midnight. <laughs> Cape Verdean Blues on Blue Note with the Horace Silver Quintet, and we have with us tonight on All Night Jazz, a very fine, well-known jazz pianist and composer, Horace Silver. How you doing?
15: Hi, Dan. I'm fine. And yourself?
14: Well, getting, uh, getting ready to play some nice sides tonight.
15: I hope there's some of ours.
14: Well, I think they're all yours. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I've been going through for the last two days and listening to a lot of the different records listening carefully and trying to uh... research it out maybe we should just start off by giving a very very brief history of uh, what you've done in the past going back to the days when you started out with Stan Getz
15: well I uh... left Connecticut uh... with Stan Getz I was with him for about a year uh... I, I thought I owe him a, a debt of gratitude uh... for taking me out of Connecticut you know I uh, wanted to come to the big city and try to make good, but uh, sometimes when you're a young teenager, you know, or, or in your early 20s or something, you get cold feet, you know. And uh, he came right up into Hartford and heard me and hired me, and I uh, was with him for a year, and uh, it was a very pleasurable experience. And then I settled in New York City for, well, from from then up until now, I still live in New York City, but uh, I had to. Uh, Get my 802 card, which meant that uh, I had to live in New York for six months and uh, only work uh, uh, weekends or a few jobs like that. You couldn't really work on a steady basis until you got your card. And uh, I, for a time, uh, I was uh, doing a lot of work at uh, Birdland uh, as a side man, you know. uh, I used to go down there during the daytime and practice the piano because I had no piano where I was living in the Bronx. And... uh, the manager, Oscar Goodstein, was a very nice fellow, and he used to let me in when there was nobody rehearsing there, and I had good practice there. And uh, he uh, would uh, sometimes put together groups, you know, for a week or two at Birdland, and if they, they needed a the piano player, he, he would always recommend me. And uh, I worked down there quite a bit with various groups. And uh, then uh, I happened to get a gig with Art Blakey uh, with a big band he had, a, well, nine- or ten-piece band that he had,
14: Was that called the uh, original Jazz Messengers?
15: Uh, I don't remember what that was called, to tell you the truth, Uh, but it was a fine band. Um, It uh, was sort of reminiscent of uh, some of these semi-big bands that Tad Dameron used to record years ago, you know, when he did Mm -hmm. uh, Focus and Our Delight and those things. Uh, It was a fine band, but uh, we couldn't get no gigs. one-nighters, you know, dances and club affairs and stuff like that. Uh, no nightclubs. Maybe a one-night one, a one night at Birdland uh, on a Monday night or something. But uh, then later on, uh, we got into the quintet thing, and uh, it started to happen a little bit more frequently.
14: It started to cook then. That yeah. was the original Art Blakey for uh, his silver quintet.
15: Well, no, it was just called... Uh, well, it, it was originally called. It was originally called the Jazz Messengers, uh-huh. period. Just the Jazz Messengers and... Uh, Then it became Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. The original Jazz Messengers uh, uh, started out with uh, Kenny Durham and and, uh, Doug Watkins, uh, Hank Mobley, Art Blakey, and myself. And then Donald Byrd replaced uh, Kenny Durham. And uh, we were together for about a year, year and a half or something like that. And then uh, I left the group and a few other people left the group. The group sort of uh, uh broke up there for a time you know and uh i really uh what i intended to do at that time was to take a little rest you know 2 or 3 months off and uh, like a vacation or something you know and uh then i was thinking about uh joining uh, another band as an as a sideman again but several friends of mine uh told me i should get my own group and i i really sort of lacked a little confidence in myself at that time about having a group of my own I really didn't want all those headaches, you know, which uh, yeah, goes with being a leader, you know. Uh guy in Philadelphia uh, that owned the showboat there, jazz club there, he offered me a week's work as a leader. So I took him up on it and got some guys together and we rehearsed. Uh, it was Hank Mobley and Art Farmer and uh, Louis Hayes and uh, Doug Watkins. And uh, we did pretty well that week, and we got a few other weeks' work, and uh, it kept growing, and uh, here I am today <laughs> With the quintet. Yeah.
14: Can we go back a little bit, play something from your original recordings with Stan Getz, play something called Penny. This has got Tommy Potter in there, and Roy Hayes and some other people, Jimmy Rainey on guitar. Uh,
15: no, Jimmy is not on that track, I believe. This is, uh, the two fellows that are on this track, uh, with Stan and myself, are two very good friends of mine from Hartford, Connecticut, uh, and they left uh, Connecticut the same time I did uh, and joined uh, Stan Getz. Uh, Joe Calloway on bass. Uh, I don't believe he plays anymore. Uh, Walter Bolin on drums. I believe he's still performing around New York City.
14: Well, let's do that then. Play Penny, and then from this album, which was recorded back in 1952 and 53 on Blue Note, it's called the Horace Silver Trio. A little thing called Safari. Penny. Original recording with Stan Getz back in 1950, and then Safari. Horace Silver Trio on Blue Note. Well, very first. That was probably the first Blue Note album, wasn't it? Uh, the,
15: that I did, yes. Mm-hmm. As a leader, that is. Uh, I had made a couple of records on Blue Note uh, with Lou Donaldson prior to that.
14: The Jazz Messengers. I was, I was reading about this uh, something that Art Blakey described them as literally meant a group that played to get the jazz message across. And if you were watching the audience and they weren't snapping their fingers and tossing their heads and really cooking, then uh, you weren't getting the message across. Is that a a fair statement to make?
15: Oh, yeah, that's very true. I go along with that all the way.
14: That must really have influenced you then, or uh, either that or you influenced Art Blakey into that.
15: No, I don't think either. Uh, I think we just both feel the same way about things, more or less sort of thinking the same same vein. not to beat
3: it'll
14: play on Shakespeare
15: <laughs> we hope you enjoyed it
14: an up-tempo thing I've got some questions I wanted to ask you Horace about composing there must must be some kind of uh, special method you have, I notice that you sometimes go off for a while
15: no there's there's no special method uh, for me in composing, I, I doubt if there is for anybody uh, but I know I, there's no special method for me uh Uh, I I love to write, and, uh, you know, the good Lord has given me the ability to write, and uh, the main thing is just to apply yourself, I would say. You know, uh, inspiration comes from various sources. Uh, No one source. And uh, you just have to uh, sit down and fool around and see what you come up with, you
14: You do it all on the piano then?
15: Not always. Uh, sometimes I do it away from the piano. Sometimes I do it in my hotel room or on a train or something like that, you know. But mostly I do it at home uh, on the piano because I, I, in my leisurely hours when I'm really relaxed, you know, I think you, you can think better than you know. But sometimes I might be relaxed laying around my hotel room and I get an idea and I jot it down on the back of something. But uh, mostly uh, the atmosphere at home, you know, where I can really just lounge around and relax. Uh, Uh, I seem to come up with more ideas.
14: Back in New York? Yes. Is a lot of it influenced by going away on a foreign trip? I noticed like the the Cape Verdean blues or the...
15: Some of it is, yeah. Uh, Tokyo? Yeah, that that was very inspirational, uh, my trip to Japan. But uh, inspiration comes from various sources, you know, it can come from a foreign trip, uh, come from different sources of music other than, than jazz, you know, folk music, Rock and roll, uh, uh, classical music, uh, Indian music, uh, Spanish or Portuguese you, or what have you. you know. Have
14: you been to India yet?
15: No, I would love to go, though. That I really would to, be an experience, I think.
14: I'd love to see what would come out of that, because there are definite selections on some of your albums that really uh, give a certain feeling. Your music tends to place the listener in a certain kind of atmosphere outside of a... Uh, you know, a room just listen to music. I felt like I was in Japan when I listened to Aso. So,
3: <laughs> <laughs>
14: <laughs> or things like that, or uh, Dragon Lady.